So why don't we do this, if you guys wouldn't mind opening up in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. That's where we're going to be at tonight. It's where we've been at for the past few weeks. And uh, you guys ready? Let's go. Gospel of Mark, it's where we're at. Mark chapter 1. Uh, what I want to do tonight is I want to basically preface everything tonight by basically saying uh, we study the Gospel of Mark, and one of the things that the Gospel of Mark is really all about is Jesus. And we love Jesus, and the reason why we love Jesus preeminently is because he changes people's lives. It's as simple as that. Jesus changes people's lives, and therefore when Jesus changes people's lives, we're changed. We love him. He makes us different. That happened for me just before I turned 16 years old. I was 15 in just a few months, just before I turned 16. Jesus met me, changed my life, transformed me. I went from being a person that knew about God to actually being a person that loved God. God changed my heart from being a person that was very, more or less, not interested or very disinterested in just the things of God to being somebody that just couldn't get enough. I wanted to read the Bible. I wanted to be around people that knew Jesus. I wanted to be around people that worshiped Jesus because Jesus had changed my heart, changed my life. That's the reality. That's what Jesus does. Is he changes people's lives. And maybe some of you are here tonight. You are a recipient of what Jesus has done in your life. He changed you. He transformed you. You were somebody else at one point, but now he's changed you. He's given you new desires, new passions, new affections, because you have a new heart. That's what he does. And what we're going to look at tonight is a story of Jesus actually meeting a guy who happens to have a very loathsome disease called leprosy, and he changes him. Jesus changes people's lives. That's really what the whole gospel of Mark, and really, long and short of it, the whole entire Bible is all about, is God changes lives through his solution, who happens to be his own son, Jesus. That's what we'll be taking a look at. So what I want to do is I'm going to pray, and what I want to do before we jump into the actual text, I want to talk a little bit about leprosy to kind of give you guys a little bit of a context or a background of what leprosy is about, and then we'll jump into the storyline and see how Jesus gets in contact with this uh, guy who's got leprosy. So let's pray, and we'll jump in. God, we just want to give you thanks because we can sit here in a nice, warm, cozy room and we have a lot of blessings. We have a lot of riches, a lot of wealth that we have. And I know, God, that all of us, we, we don't believe that. We question that. We doubt that. Um, because, God, our propensity is always to look at somebody else who's got more and be frustrated. And that's just the condition of our heart. And, God, we want to repent of that. We want to say that we want to be able to look at what we do have and be thankful for that and to be able to use what we do have as a means to leverage that as a way to worship you, as a way to honor you, and as a way to be used uh, so that we can learn more about you. And that's what we want to do here tonight. We want to take advantage of the time and the moments that we have here together to sit in this room, to have our hearts and our minds challenged in your word so that we can be changed. Jesus changes lives. And God, we pray that tonight that Jesus would change our lives. If there's anybody here, God, tonight that doesn't know you, that's far from you, that has areas in their hearts and their, or in their life that they feel distant from you, God, I pray that you would draw them near, that you would cause them to see how much you love them and what you've done to bring about restoration in their hearts and their lives, but also at the same time how much you dislike and how much you loathe their sin. And yet, God, you provided a solution. I pray that it would be very clear, very evident tonight that it would be seen through Jesus that we would love Jesus and be changed by Jesus. So we give you this evening, and we ask all these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
First up tonight, I want to talk a little bit about leprosy and give you guys a little bit of a background about this. So I want to show you guys a couple slides a little bit to kind of give you a little bit of a background of what leprosy is. I'm showing you guys these things to kind of uh, freak you out, scare you, whatnot. But I, I want to show you, I want to kind of bring you face to face with this loathsome disease. It's one of those uh, diseases that for the most part, I guarantee you probably none of you in this room have ever seen it. I've never seen it. Been around the world, been in a lot of different countries. Most of them are third world. I've never seen leprosy. And uh, probably none of you have either. And what I want to do is I want to introduce you tonight to this, to this uh, feared uh, and loathsome disease that if you had it, if you caught it 2,000 years ago, there are places in the world today that if you have this, you're shunned, you're pushed away. There's a lot of social stigma that goes with this particular type of disease. Um, in America, I read a statistic that only 7,000 people have this disease. So in our entire country, only 7,000, they probably live in the Appalachians. But the point of the matter is, I mean that, I mean that. You know, places where, I kind of mean that as a joke, but I kind of mean that as real. At, you know, places where they're remote, people that are kind of pulled away uh, from the rest of society and don't have a lot of uh, typical medical supplies and whatnot. That's pretty much where this disease still exists because for the most part, uh, we figured out ways to kind of conquer it. But 2,000 years ago, they didn't have any type of way to conquer it, and it was a feared disease. And if you caught it, if you had it, uh, it was kind of one of the worst things that would have been uh, given to you. It would have been equivalent to uh, contracting AIDS, as if someone sat down with you and said, you have AIDS, you're going to die in maybe the next 7 to 20 years, and you have got a life sentence, and it's going to take your life. Um, that's what uh, leprosy was. It basically was a skin disease that was uh, the result of a bacteria that would literally eat away your skin. It would eat away the soft uh, portions of your body, the mucous membrane, um, oftentimes it was thought that people who had this disease, uh, you know, their arm would fall off or their leg would fall off. Remember as a little kid, hearing little Bible stories, looking at little felt drawings and thinking of these lepers of just, you know, having parts of their body fall off and thinking that, gosh, leprosy is horrible and makes your body parts fall off. It doesn't. It never has. If, if you have uh, uh, parts of your body that would fall off. It was always because of secondary inf infections. That what would happen is that if you had this disease, as you can see, um, people oftentimes uh, were not able to clean themselves, and they wouldn't take baths, or they wouldn't shower themselves, and so therefore they would catch these secondary diseases. And one of the things that is problematic with this type of uh, disease is it would be like these little ulcers all over your body. And what would end up happening is uh, it would desensitize your skin so you wouldn't actually feel these things. And uh, what would end up happening is sometimes secondary disease uh, uh, infections would set in or depending upon the place that you would live, if it was harsh conditions, uh, you know, maybe frostbite or if you burned yourself, you wouldn't feel it. Um, you know, all sorts of things can happen, and sometimes you can get gangrene, so as a means or as a way of saving someone's life, they would cut off your finger, they would cut off your toe, or cut off your foot as a means of basically preserving your life, so uh, it, that's one of the reasons why I think oftentimes leprosy is thought of as, you know, you lose parts of your body, in a sense you do, but it's not because of the actual disease, it's always secondary diseases that would kind of set in, and so the point of the matter is, is that this was a sort of type of thing that would happen to people, I want to take a look at the next slide, uh, as a little child, Little child, obviously, who at one point had perfect, beautiful skin, uh, contracted this disease, came down with this. So you'd imagine a little child that instinctively you would want to run and pick up in your arms and give a big hug. This child in the culture you would shun. You would run. Rather than giving it a big hug, you would try to shoo it away. You wouldn't want to touch this thing. You wouldn't want it to be around your kids. You wouldn't want it to be around any type of family member. You would try to actually shun 
the child and remove it from any type of uh, a presence that you are in. Take a look at the next slide. And uh, this is a guy, obviously, who has kind of an advanced stage of it. Uh, you can see his hand, his lost fingers and whatnot. Obviously, we don't know why, but um, what would end up happening is they would, they, because these sores were open, um, flies, infections would set in, so they would cover them. But as they would cover them, because these wounds were seeping pus and um, all sorts of infection, the actual bandages would stick to their skin, and uh, so they wouldn't ever want to take the bandages off, which left them being very dirty and filthy. Um, people who had this disease didn't want to shower or take baths uh, because it was too painful, and oftentimes when they did, it would end up ripping off large chunks of their skin, and it was just a horrible type of disease. So these people typically were very smelly. They didn't bathe at all, sometimes weeks, months, maybe even years, and uh, pretty much most people that would get this disease, uh, they would live for anywhere, sometimes even up to 20 years like this. Um, so I want to kind of give you even a little bit more of a biblical cultural context of this because if, say for example, you got this disease uh, in the first century around Jesus' day, oftentimes Jews kind of had this sort of uh, uh, religious uh, connection with it. In other words, if you had this disease, it was probably because you did something wrong, God's upset with you, it's a part of his judgment. So you have incurred uh, wrath from God because of this disease or something that you've done. God has given you this disease, so therefore, uh, rather than trying to help you, uh, you're shunned. You are cursed of God, and therefore, because you're cursed of God, uh, you need to go live away from the rest of the holy, righteous, good people that are obviously not cursed of God, who love God, who pay their tithes, who do all sorts of good things, read their Bibles, go to church, do synagogue, all these other types of things, while these people were basically forced out of social context uh, because of the disease. Um, these people were also described as being unclean, um, not just simply because they didn't shower or bathe, but unclean ceremonially, meaning they were not able to actually enter into synagogue worship. They couldn't go to the temple, they couldn't meet with other people, um, these people had basically been separated from any type of worship or religious relationship with uh, the other people within Israel. And so they were not allowed to go worship God. They were not allowed to go hang out with other church members or the congregation of Israel and worship with them and love with them and serve alongside them. Um, perhaps one of the worst things about this disease is typically what would happen to you. Um, so again, I, what I want you to understand is that, for example, all these people in these pictures, I obviously just got these pictures from Google. I'm sure all these people have a name. They have family members. Some of them perhaps even have children. Um, and the reality, what I want you to see is in the Bible, every single person that, that had this disease or came down with this disease also had a name, also had some sort of family that they either came from or family that they created, that God enabled them or allowed them to be able to have. But I want you to feel this, that these people that came down with this disease were basically forced to pull away from their family. They weren't able to touch anyone. They weren't able to hug anyone. Can you imagine if you had a, had a child that came down with this disease, never being able to hug them again, never being able to swipe them up in your arms and snuggle with them and give them a kiss on their cheek. And if you had a wife or a husband, you were not able to sleep with them or be intimate with them anymore. You're basically forced to not touch them for the rest of their lives until they basically died a miserable death. They were separated from you. It was a horrible, loathsome disease that, that everybody feared in the first century. And people that had this disease were forced to basically live this isolated, separated, lonely life. And whenever they were to come into contact with anybody that didn't have this disease, they were required to shout 
unclean, unclean. So that people who saw them from a distance would avoid them. That was what this disease was all about. It had this social stigma of, that was placed upon them because of all this. And what we're going to see here in the story is that Jesus actually breaks all social custom. Jesus does something that's extremely scandalous. And actually goes out of his way and touches that. Touches that person. Touches this person that has this disease that is separated, that is isolated, that has been completely shunned and rejected um, and despised by all of the people. Jesus actually breaks all the taboo and goes out of his way and does what nobody else would ever do. And he touches them. He doesn't just preach a sermon to them. He doesn't just throw a verse. He could have. He could have just spoken a word. You're healed. And it would have been healed. He's done that already. We've already seen him do that. He doesn't need to touch this person. But Jesus actually goes out of his way to prove a point, to make a point. That as God, he's going to touch those that are unclean in order to make them well. This is why we love Jesus. And again, like I said, some of you, that, that's you. That's been the description of your life. You were the leper. You were the unclean person. You were the one that had brokenness. You were the one that had a life that was shattered. You were the one that felt and lived loneliness. And you were the one that felt despised and rejected. And yet Jesus touched you. He changed you. You're a different person now. And you love Jesus now. That's what Jesus does. So what I want to do is I want to begin to take a look at the story and see uh, what leads up to this. And so what I want to do is I kind of want to break this down into two little sections here. And I think Mark does this kind of naturally. And what you'll find in the Gospel of Mark as he writes in these little vignettes, these little snapshots, little snippets of Jesus' life that I think he intends for us as we read through the whole book, uh, that we would sort of pause a little bit and just kind of really think about these things. Think about who Jesus is. Now Mark already told us off uh, the very beginning that Jesus is a king. He starts the entire gospel out by saying, this is the beginning of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so that word Christ, what we've been really trying to emphasize Whenever you see that word Christ in the New Testament, um, it, it actually is a title. It's, it, it speaks of Jesus' mission, that he is king. Christos is the actual Greek word. Mashiach is the Hebrew word. That this is the same synonymous term, that the word Christ and Mashiach actually means anointed king. That Jesus is the anointed king. Not just a king, not just one of the many kings, but he is the king sent by God, from God, to come and do something brand new. To do something that no other king has ever done. To be what no other king has ever been. To accomplish what no other king has ever accomplished. And Jesus is going to come and he's going to do it in an entirely different way than any other king that has ever come before him. He's, he is a king, but he's not like any other king that has ever come before him. So what we're going to see about Jesus is that uh, we're going to see at least two things. And I think Mark wants us to kind of identify this. Is that the first thing we'll take a look at in about verses 35 to 39 is we're going to see Jesus actually touching God. What I mean by that is Jesus is going to have relationship uh, prayer. He's going to go out and he's going to pray to God. In other words, he's in this sort of relational uh, aspect with, with God, touching God's heart, touching the Father's heart. The second thing that we'll take a look at is Mark wants us to make certain, verses 40 to 45, that Jesus is actually going to touch the unclean person. So first, Jesus touching God's heart. Secondly, Jesus is actually touching this unclean person. And that's exactly what Jesus does. He's a mediator. In other words, he's a go-between. He's a bridge. He's a bridge between God and he's a bridge between fallen, unclean people. He's going to stand in the gap, stand in between. He's going to represent to God, people, 
and he's going to represent God to the people. It's what Jesus does. So Mark starts off by telling us the story in verse 35. And he says, And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed, that is Jesus, out to a desolate place where he prayed. So first of all, Jesus starts out his day. It's important to note up until this point that Jesus has had a very busy ministry. We don't know exactly how long his ministry has been going. But from the time of his baptism at John, he's been doing miracles. He's been helping people. He's been preaching good messages. He's been preaching in ways that nobody's ever heard messages before. Word has gotten out about Jesus. He's this itinerant preacher going around, not only speaking good things, but also doing powerful things. And so uh, Jesus has a crowd, a massive crowd of people that are now very interested in what he has to say and are very interested in what he has to do. And so they're basically following Jesus everywhere. Now you would imagine, with this type of popularity, you'd kind of play to the crowd, right? You'd be like, I've got to, you know, constantly work on my fan base. I mean, I got like 5,000 fans on Facebook, and I've got to make sure that they're all happy. That's not what Jesus does. He doesn't really care about his fan base. He's not really concerned about what the crowds are saying or even the demands that they have upon him. Because what Jesus does is he realizes that what's most important is his time with his father. So he goes out early in the morning. Rather than going out early in the morning just to go out and help a bunch of people, he goes out early in the morning to go be with his father. I think it's really important to understand this, that Jesus recognizes the utter importance of depending upon his father. He goes and he prays. I want you to understand a little bit of something. We can spend a lot of time talking about prayer. I'm not going to because I want to kind of get to the main part of the story. But what I want to say about prayer is this, is that prayer really begins with a Trinitarian God. That God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that the three are in fellowship and unity and love. They serve one another. They care for one another. They communicate with one another. They're always in loving fellowship and communion and communication with one another. And that's what Jesus is doing here. That's what we see Jesus doing. He goes out into this quiet place, pulls away from his cell phone, logs out of Facebook, gets rid of Twitter. It just gets, goes and hangs out with God and goes spends time with him. Because he realizes that's important, to unplug a little bit, to pull away from things. He's not going to be a slave to the tyranny of the urgent. It's kind of funny because that's, for the most part, how a lot of us live our lives. I mean, really, at the end of the day, we're completely a slave to being texted. I mean, think about it. Did you, I mean, this is honestly, did you know that you don't have to actually look at every single text that comes through in that instant? It's actually possible to continue a relationship looking at people in their face, and if your phone gets a text that you actually don't have to look at it, did you know that? You're like, no, I didn't know that. It's, it's true. I'm, just, I'm telling you that. It's absolutely true. You actually don't have to look at every text. You don't have to actually respond to every text, every email that comes in at, the, at that moment. The problem is we're slaves to it. We don't even know it, right? We, we, we're slaves to it. We just don't even know it because we literally think that what is most important in our lives is what's most urgent. But did you know that usually the voices that are constantly screaming urgent messages to us, urgent messages at us, aren't always important? Did you know that? Most of the things that come to us are like, you've got to do something now. You actually can wait maybe like 20 minutes, half an hour, a couple days. You don't have to do something all the time just because somebody says it's demanding immediate response. Jesus doesn't respond to everybody's urgent need. He goes out and hangs out with his father. He's like, I don't have anything to give. I need to go spend time with my father to be refueled and be 
refreshed. Jesus, what we got to understand, comes into this earth as a man. As a man. And this is the mystery of the incarnation, that he's God incarnate, that he is God, he's the infinite, all-powerful God, but he takes upon himself these limitations. And in doing so, taking upon these limitations, he's totally placing himself in complete dependence upon his Father. So think about it this way. If prayer begins with a Trinitarian God communing with each other, and Jesus, even on the earth, I mean, even as God in human form, still totally dependent upon God himself, the Father, how much more are we dependent upon God, all right? None of us come even close comparatively to Jesus, his words, his works, his actions. We don't come close to even comparing to Jesus. And if Jesus was completely dependent upon his Father, how much more are we dependent upon God? I mean, think about that. Now, let me say something else about prayer. Jesus, when he goes to the Father, take a look at the next slide. Jesus, and we'll go back to this one. I just kind of wrote this up here. For Jesus, prayer was not getting stuff from God. For, prayer, for Jesus, prayer was getting God. There's a huge distinction here because for most of us, when we think of prayer, we think of, we, we have all sorts of weird things. In fact, I would even go so far as to say that when, when we throw out the word prayer, a lot of us have different ideas that kind of come into our mind. I think probably one of the most preeminent ideas that we think about when we think about prayer is we envision God as like this big uh, celestial Santa Claus that is checking on, up on us to make certain that we are not naughty, but rather we're nice. And so what we do by approaching God like this celestial Santa Claus, we bring to him our list of everything we've done good. And what we do is we bring it to God and we're like, God, I've been really good. Here's the things I've done this past month. I've gone to church every month and I had the pastor who has a bad haircut yell at me for an hour. That's got to be worth something. Maybe a good grade in school, maybe a raise at the office. Uh, God, that's got to be good for something. So, Lord, I've done all of this for you. I've endured all of this stuff for you. I've read all these verses. I've, you know, memorized all these passages in the Bible. I've listened to a lot of sermons. I've done all these good things for you. So, God, now please give something back to me. We sort of try to establish these kind of leverage points whereby we can somehow leverage God's grace down to us. That's not prayer. That's approaching God either like a Santa Claus or like a grumpy boss. And what Jesus wants us to understand, it's kind of ironic, that, that when the disciples that followed Jesus for three years, they pull him aside, the only thing they ever asked Jesus to teach them Ironically, it's not, hey, Jesus, can you show us how you do that, like, walk on water trick? We're really interested in that. Like, to me, that really interests me. I'm very curious about how do you walk on water. I'd love to know that one. But the disciples don't ask him. They don't ask him, like, Jesus, how do you create 5,000 loaves of fish and, you know, bread and all this? How do you create all this stuff? They don't ask Jesus that. They don't ask Jesus, Jesus, how do you preach? You're a great preacher. How do you preach? Good messages. They don't ask him that. The one thing they ask Jesus to tell them about is, how do you pray? Show us how to pray. And Jesus says, when you pray, go to God and say, our Father. Jesus just, here's what I love about Jesus. He completely removes this whole mysterious aura about prayer. I don't know about you, but when I first became a Christian, for some reason I was like really intrigued with a lot of like, I don't know, I came from a Catholic background, so maybe this was a little bit of my Catholic background. I was really intrigued with a lot of the ancient saints. 
that studied prayer, that wrote about prayer, uh, the mystics, they called them, really interested in a lot of these guys. And so for me, I spent a lot of time reading these guys over and over and over again. And um, in the Christian church, around the Puritan time, a lot of the Puritans sort of were influenced by a lot of the, the, the ancient mystics. And what happened was, you know, you read some of the Puritans, and I remember reading a lot of the Puritans, and I love the Puritans, and I love their theological stances and doctrines and whatnot. Um, but one of the things that I kind of saw about a lot of the Puritans is like these guys were like hardcore prayers. And I remember kind of looking at them and thinking, gosh, these guys pray, man. They wake up at like four in the morning and they spend, you know, four hours on their knees like in the snow praying. And I remember one guy I was reading, this guy named David Brainerd. He's an amazing guy, really amazing guy. In fact, he almost became Jonathan Edwards' son-in-law because he was going to get married to his daughter, a girl named Jerusha. She died. He died later. Anyways, the point of the matter is, uh, this guy was a young guy, and he was an amazing preacher, and he was a missionary to the Indians um, back east in, in America. And what had happened was, this guy always would go out in the morning and pray, and I'd read, I'd read stuff about this guy, and I'd be like, I want to be like that. And I remember, like, I'm, I'm intrigued by that. I want to pray. I want to pray like that. I want to wake up early in the morning and be like that. I remember going out and just, you know, I, mean, I grew up in Huntington Beach, and so there wasn't any, like, snow that I can go out in and kind of buffet my body in the middle of, so I'd be like, okay, I'll go to the beach. So I'd go to the beach, and I'd be, get out there early in the morning, and by the time the sun starts rising up, I'm like, dang, there's good surf. So rather than praying, I'd go surf. And then after surfing, I'd feel really guilty. I'm like, dang it, I, I should have prayed instead I went surfing. Now I feel guilty. I'm not a good praying person. I'm not even really a good Christian, I don't think. And I would get really discouraged about all the books I read about prayer because really what they were all saying, it's almost like all of them were saying, Brian, you suck at praying. You're no good. You're really no good. You don't do it right. You don't do it enough. You don't do it diligently enough. You're really bad. It's, I mean, I lived like that for years. You know what ended up happening to me is I was just kind of like, I guess I'm just not going to pray because I guess I'm no good at it. And finally, you know, I think what kind of happened to me is I began to realize that if there's one thing that Satan can do that can completely unplug the church, disconnect the church from God, is if Satan can somehow get people thinking about prayer, that prayer is this mysterious, mystical thing that you've got to get yourself into and all of these ritualistic things you've got to do and you've got to have your heart in the right place and you've got to think the right thoughts and you've got to chant the right things and you've got to pray the right things prayers if you if you if you do that then you're praying right if you don't do that you're not praying at all and you're probably a really bad christian you know what happens to most of the church they're like i just won't pray i think satan's just like bingo succeeded that's exactly what i wanted because first of all i think it the problem the flaw is is that we start with this false idea of what prayer is let me try to break it down for you as simply as I can. Prayer is calling God your dad. He's your dad. He loves you. If you focus on prayer as being like this big, ritualistic, metaphysical, spiritual type thing that you just endeavor to somehow discipline yourself to do, I'll tell you what, you will always end up probably just like I did. One of two ways. Um, and I also went through both phases. One, I became very arrogant because you know what I did? I looked at everybody that wasn't waking up at four in the morning. I think, you're not a really good Christian because I wake up at four in the morning. And I pray on my knees. I mean, look at my knees. I remember reading this one story about this one guy. I think they called him like camel knees. Because the guy, the dude like pray all the time on his knees. I'm like, I want that. But you know what it was? It was actually my arrogance. I'm like, I want that because I want people to think I'm super spiritual. It's totally self-righteous. It's evil. It's wickedness. It's pride. 
And then finally, realizing, like, my knees aren't getting all camely, I'm like, I'm bad. I'm not a good prayer, so I guess I'll stop. So I went from being arrogant and looking at everybody else condescendingly to stopping. That's exactly what the devil wants. But you know what God wants? God wants you to see him as your dad. If you see him as your dad, relationally, that he's actually just, he loves you, and he's calling you to himself, he's calling you into an intimate relationship with him, and God just wants you to speak to him, God wants to speak to you, and he loves you, that changes everything. It actually changes the way that you pray, because rather than trying to carve out, you know, insurmountable hours to this big task that you can't do anyhow, uh, you actually begin to look at it and say, I, I can pray everywhere. I can be in Trader Joe's, talking to God. I can be at the beach, talking to God. And I can just be, you know, sitting at a stoplight uh, in what no traffic we have in San Luis here and be talking to God and have God talk back to me and just be in relationship. And that's prayer. That's like talking to God. That's what prayer is. That's what the intimate relationship that I think Jesus had with the Father. And yeah, he had times that were elongated, times in which he separated, times in which he meditated, times in which that, can, that could be like a rap or something like that. Wasn't that good? But the point of the matter is, is that Jesus had all of that. There were moments in which Jesus did that, but the majority of the time, I think Jesus was praying all the time. Even though there were moments he carved out in the morning of his day to hang out with God, the majority of his time, I think he was while he was just walking, while he was working, while he was doing stuff, while he was preaching, while he was healing people. He was just in relationship, talking to his father, talking to his dad. That's what I want you to hear about with regard to prayer. It's like God is like a father. He loves you, cares for you. He wants to speak to you. He wants you to speak to him. So I hope, honestly, I pulled the plug on the whole mysterious, mystique aura that's around prayer and just simplified it for you. That's my hope. Because honestly, at the end of the day, I want you to pray. I want you to know the joy of meeting with God and loving God as your dad and hearing God speak good things to you of encouragement to your heart because he really truly loves you. And stop trying to pray in ways that are full of arrogance and pride and mystique and something other than what Jesus did. Okay, so that's it. So Jesus starts out his day. He's meeting with his father. Take a look at the, the next verse as we continue on this. He says, and then Simon... And those who are with them, they search for him. So again, obviously, uh, Simon Peter at this particular point is one of the main guys within Jesus' inner core of ministry. He's looking for Jesus, and he begins to tell Jesus, everyone is looking for you. So again, you begin to kind of get a little bit of a uh, uh, feel, a little bit of the brevity of the weight of what's going on in Jesus' life. There are these huge expectations that are being mounted upon him. People want him to come preach to them. People want Jesus to come to perform healings and miracles and whatnot. And, uh, but Jesus, again, is trying to prioritize his day in a proper way of saying what I need first and foremost is I need my Father. I need to get my Father. I don't need to just get gifts. I don't, just don't need to get things from my Father. I need my Father. I need to be with him. So Jesus then goes on to say, uh, he says, and then let us go. Let us go to the next town. And he says that I might preach also, and that is why I came. And then he went throughout all Galilee preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Here's what I love. Take a look at that last verse that we just read in verse 39. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in synagogues and casting out demons. One of the things that you'll discover about Jesus is that Jesus is always doing two things. Words and works. All the time. Preaching, but also performing miracles. He's always doing these two things. 
They're always coupled together. They're always united. He's not just going around sermonizing, preaching good messages, telling people to close up their Bible and be like, all right, come back next week. It's all good. Later. You know, Jesus is not doing that. He's actually preaching God's word, but he's also doing something. He's healing people. He's touching people. He's engaging other people, spending time with other people, meeting with other people. Jesus was not just simply a sermonizer. He wasn't going around just telling people about God. That's it. He does tell people about God. He preaches the message of the kingdom. He tells people to repent from their sin, to repent from their idolatry, and turn back to the living God. But he also does something for their condition. He helps them. He touches them. He loves them. Here's what I want to give you a little bit of a history uh, lesson very quickly about the past 150 or so years of the, of the church uh, throughout the world, for the most part, in the West. Probably in the late 19th century, late 1800s, there's a movement that had originally kind of started in like New York or within the area of England. And it was basically what we would call kind of the dawn of what would become later known as the social gospel or the liberal movement. And what basically happened was there's a group of believers, preachers, pastors that had seen the church become very sterile. What had happened was... Um, after the Great Awakening and after Puritanism kind of made its way into the new country, into, into America, um, what had happened was the church oftentimes goes through these phases and these periods where it settles into sort of dogmatism. It settles into kind of um, ritualism or just uh, dead orthodoxy where everything is about being clear and cut and concise and everything is about making sure you get your theological um, T's crossed and your theological I's dotted and you make sure that you have good orthodox understanding about God and it's about making sure that the sermons are nice and concise and exact and that you're parsing verbs properly and that you're preaching messages exegetically and expositionally from the Bible and what had happened was for the most part uh, the churches in London and the churches in New York um, started, started turning a dead eye, a, a blind eye to sort of the wake of what happened in the Industrial Revolution. And what happened in the Industrial Revolution was a lot of people were just being down and out. They were working long hours. They were turning into a lot of alcohol, and they were getting drunk. And this is causing all sorts of abuse in families. Um, all sorts of uh, social concerns started arising. So typically it was not uncommon for someone to be like, you know, passing all these people on their way to church that are in the gutter, drunk, people that are starving, little kids, literally, um, like Oliver Twist, you guys remember that? Like that, think of Oliver Twist, right? Little kid going around stealing stuff from people. That's what was going on all throughout London, all throughout areas of New York. And these kids were fighting for their lives. And it wasn't uncommon for church people to walk by these people and be like, not even, not even think about helping them. The idea in the, most of people's minds was, I got to get to church. I got to go pray. I got to go read my Bible. The pastor's going to be preaching. I got to go listen to the guy. And what was happening was sort of this movement that turned away from social concerns, that turned away from helping people. And what happened was sort of in the liberal movement was kind of this pull away from orthodoxy to a lot of social activity. And so what happened was sort of that, that, that dawned a new movement throughout America, throughout England, that for the most part became very concerned about social concerns, became concerned uh, and wrapped around what we call the social gospel, helping people out, taking care of uh, issues of justice and uh, trying to help people that are down and out and trying to establish social programs to kind of bring about reform. But what had happened was there was a de-emphasizing of the gospel. Rather than loving the Bible, rather than emphasizing the scripture, rather than emphasizing what Jesus did for us on the cross, 
uh, the main emphasis was be, beginning to be placed upon um, what God wants to do in terms of reviving communities and restoring broken places. And that became sort of the emphasis. So while the social gospel sort of moved away from the orthodox teaching of the church, it started focusing more on social issues. But that created another reaction within the church that became hardcore fundamentalist, meaning there was actually a movement that began, and there was a book that actually was written about you know, 100 years ago or so called uh, Fundamentalism. And it was really a, sort of a resurgence of saying, no, 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 we, we've got to get back to the Bible. We've got to get back to the teaching and the preaching of the cross and preaching repentance and all these other things. So typically what you have, especially in today, in a lot of churches today, you sort of have this bifurcation, this sort of uh, pulling away that, you know, either you can be socially concerned and uh, preach uh, a message that uh, brings about restoration in people's lives, or are you going to preach a message about orthodox teaching and it's fine and you love the Bible and yet you don't really care too much about other people. So what's created in the church is sort of this polarization. You either love the Bible, preach the Bible, you're exegetically correct, you're expositionally preaching messages and so on and so forth, but there's not a lot of social concern going on, not a lot of uh, justice and love to help people out. And to be honest with you, for the most part, this is kind of the tribe that our church actually comes from. I've been there. I've seen that. I've, I've watched people that have become so focused on just getting the message right. It actually creates sort of a contempt. That people look at other people that, in their minds, don't have the message right. And there's sort of this mentality that, we can put them down, we can judge them, we can criticize them, because everything has become about just getting your orthodoxy correct and succinct. But there's not a lot of concern, not a lot of social action going on, not a lot of help trying to help out other people. So what ends up happening is sort of this imbalance towards memorizing Scripture, preaching the Bible, uh, having all these things properly succinct and in order, but not a lot of concern for social activity. Or the other side, the other extreme, a lot of social activity, but not a lot of care and concern about orthodox teaching, and so on and so forth. But what I'm saying is this, is that if you understand the gospel clearly, if you look at Jesus' life, very clearly what you see with Jesus is there's no distinction between the two. Jesus' words are always in sync with his works all the time. He's going around preaching. He's going around healing. He's concerned about people's social concerns. He's concerned about their social problems or the dilemmas that they're, that are, that they're facing. He wants to help him out. But Jesus also realizes that just simply bringing cold water to a person who's going through a hard time in life is not enough. That they've got to understand, they've got to wrap their hearts, they've got to be awakened to God. So in order for that to happen, the good news, the message, the gospel has to be preached to them. So here's what I'm asking, is that what would it look like if we were a church that really got the gospel and didn't just simply focus on orthodoxy, but also understood the gospel as in terms of how it helps and shapes our orthopraxy, meaning how we practice it, how we live it, what we do. So in other words, we don't just become simply people that are talking about theological concerns, but we disregard the hurts and the pains of people's lives in our community or even beyond our community. In other words, what would it look like if we became a church that was deeply impassioned about the Bible but also deeply impassioned about people's social concerns, just like Jesus was. 
I think that type of message is what Jesus preached. It wasn't like either and. It was both. There was no distinction within it. It's just how Jesus lived. It's what he did. It's how he acted. It's how he moved forward in his ministry. And I think the same would be true if we get the gospel. In fact, I would even go so far as to say is that people that get the gospel will actually be more concerned about orthodoxy and more concerned about orthopraxy than either extremes. They actually will. Because they love the gospel, they want to make certain that the gospel is clearly understood. Because if it's not clearly understood, then there's no freedom. People's souls will not be free if the gospel is not clearly understood. So we want to make certain that people get the gospel right. We want to make certain that idols are repented of. We want to make certain that people feel the brevity of sin, how serious sin is, that they would repent from it. We also want to make certain that people are taken care of, that if they're hurting, that we can go out of our way to help them out, that there are social concerns, that, you know, if kids are, you know, being abducted and being thrown in some sort of sex slave circles, like that, that should move our hearts to say, what can we do? Maybe we can at least begin to pray, or maybe there's people in our neighborhoods that are hurting, or, you know, I mean, we, I mean, we live in San Luis, and there's for the most part, compared to, like, I don't know, San Francisco or whatever, there's not as much extreme poverty that we've seen here. So it's, I think we've, we've got to even just ask, are there areas even in our own community that we can begin to reach out and love and demonstrate and show where are the areas of need within our own community? Shouldn't be an either or, it should be both. That's what we see with Jesus. So Jesus goes out, preaches, but also heals. Now we come to sort of the second part of the story I want to finish up here on is Jesus touching this unclean person. What I want to point out, there's at least three scandalous things that Mark wants to kind of bring to our attention about this. And really, Mark, as he writes this out, he, um, you know, we realize that, like, for example, if you lived in the first century, first century and you either read this story or you were actually there in the congregation or there in the group of people in which Jesus uh, traveled around with, and you saw these things happen or you read about these things, you'd be shocked. You'd be like, are you kidding me? That happened? Really? That happened? And it doesn't shock us because we're not aware of the cultural uh, taboos surrounding it. That's one of the reasons why I want to make sure that you guys understand uh, the seriousness of leprosy and the type of social stigma that it carried with it. That, uh, that when this leper comes into this context where Jesus is and how Jesus responds to this person, this is very scandalous. This just did not happen. Uh, this, this type of stuff did not take place in the first century. And if it did... It was shocking. Like, people would just trip out and not know what to do with themselves. So the first thing that we see that's kind of scandalous is we see the scandal of what the leper does, what he does. Take a look at verse 40. It says this, And the leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him. So what I want you to see is that this leper, who was obviously driven to live out in the wilderness, somewhere far and somewhere that was remote, someplace that was lonely because he was despised, he was pushed out. He was rejected by all other people. That for him to come into this area where Jesus is at, I envision at least sort of a crowd surrounding Jesus. Now, we don't know if Jesus is in a city or not. We don't know exactly where he's at. But it would be my assumption that wherever Jesus is at, there's a large crowd of people around him. So whatever the circumstances are, is that I envision what happened was this uh, leper comes in from wherever far away he was, kind of pushes his way perhaps through the crowd. We don't know exactly how he did this. Maybe he had something over his body. We don't know exactly. But people knew obviously that he was a leper. But he makes his mad dash 
to come to Jesus, and he throws himself down at Jesus' feet. The way that the uh, Greek actually reads is he literally throws himself down in this vulnerable position. Just bows down before Jesus. We don't know if he like held on to Jesus' legs or if he just uh, kind of kept himself as a, at a safe distance, showing some honor and respect rather than touching Jesus. We don't know, but what we do know is that he basically throws himself at Jesus' mercy. It's very scandalous. And again, like I said, if, if you were there hanging out in the crowd, and let's say you had your spouse with you or your kids with you, and you saw this happen, you'd freak out. You would tell your kids, stand back. Don't go near this guy. He's got leprosy. And you would maybe even pull your kids and run away from that whole scenario. You would, you would tell your kids, we've got to go home now because it's not safe for you to be able to be here. This was the environment. This was the circumstance that was going on. This was scandalous. And Mark wants to make certain that we feel the weight of that, that what happens here right now is, is just totally out of the ordinary. It's not acceptable. It's breaking every single cultural and ritual and ceremonial rule of the day. But this guy is desperate. He's desperate. So he comes to Jesus, and he throws himself at Jesus' feet. And the picture, again, like I said, that's there is he makes himself very vulnerable. Not just to Jesus is he vulnerable, but to everybody else. And I envision in my mind that it's possible that other people around him could have been very angry and upset. Other people are probably very afraid. But perhaps those that were angry maybe picked up stones and were ready to throw them at him. Like, how dare this guy come into our community, threaten my family, threaten my spouse? Like, again, like I said, there was all this taboo around the disease. And if you got your kids with you and you're thinking, maybe my kid's going to get the disease now just because this totally insensitive, uncaring idiot comes into our context and ruins everything. Like, that's how, you know, I would imagine many people probably would have felt. And Mark wants us to feel that. So he throws himself at Jesus' feet. And I kind of just envision just bowing down before Jesus. Very vulnerable. Not just to Jesus, but to everybody else. So that's the first thing that I see that he does. It's very scandalous. The second thing that I notice that he does, it's kind of scandalous as well, is the scandal of really what he says. Uh, the second part of verse 40, he says this. Then he said to him, Jesus, he says, if you will, you can make me clean. What's interesting about this is that it, we can tell a little bit about who this person is. We don't know exactly who the guy is, but what we can tell is that this guy definitely is, is, is Jewish. We know that because if he was Gentile, he would have been unfamiliar with uh, Jewish law and Jewish ceremonial practices and all that. And if he was a Gentile, he probably would have walked up to Jesus and said, Jesus, if you will, uh, would, you can heal me. He doesn't ask Jesus to heal him, ironically. He asks Jesus, can you make me clean? This is really insightful. So we know this guy's, is a, this guy's a Jew. And what he knows, what he associates his disease with is not just simply the fact that he's sick and then he's dying, and he's got this loathsome disease, but that because he has this disease, he's unclean. He's not allowed to hug his wife. He's not allowed to touch anybody. He's not allowed to go worship God. He's not allowed to go to synagogue. He's not allowed to go hang out with people. Do you know that little babies, newborn child, children, if they're not held, they actually die? They die. Little babies uh, this has been a problem in many orphanages that children are born or dropped off on the doorstep and they're not hugged, they're not loved, they're not cradled, they're not brought to someone's bosom and just loved. They die. They actually die. We die without touch. This guy was dying. He wanted touch desperately, but he couldn't receive it because he was not just sick, didn't just have a disease, but he was unclean. But he goes to Jesus 
He says, Jesus, if you will, you can make me clean. That's what our sin does. One of the reasons why throughout the Bible, leprosy is oftentimes associated with sin. Not that sin creates leprosy or causes leprosy as some sort of a judgment, but sin oftentimes is likened to leprosy. Because like leprosy, leprosy desensitizes uh, certain parts of your body that you should have a lot of feeling in. And in some way, that's what sin does, is it desensitizes your heart. The part of your body that you should be feeling. You should feel deeply. God's given us emotions. We should feel emotions deeply. We should have deep passions for God. Problem is, oftentimes, is our deep passions are not for God. We have deep passions for things that are not God. Things that actually enslave us. And what happens with sin is sin actually desensitizes you. I'll give you an example. Remember the first time maybe you did something that you knew you shouldn't be doing? The first time you did it, it took you a while to do it. You kind of had to coach yourself to do it. And finally, after you did it, you felt so bad, so guilty. You felt horrible. But the second time, fifth time, tenth time you did it, you didn't even think about it. You just did it. You may even even justified the fact that you had the right to do it. That's desensitization. You, you, you stopped feeling something about that. That's what sin does. And one of the things that oftentimes is very offensive to people is they don't like to be told they're sinners. They don't like to be told that we have this disease that desensitizes us that's all centered around ourselves. One of the reasons why people get offended by it, they're like, I don't like to be called a sinner. And I don't think I'm a sinner. The reason why oftentimes most people don't think they're sinners is because we live in a world with six billion people that's a ginormous leper colony. Everyone around you is a leper. Right? So you look at everybody around you and you're like, I'm not that bad. I'm actually pretty good. But you're all lepers. We're all sinners. We're all lepers. Right? We've all been somehow desensitized to sin. It's one of the reasons why we personally wrestle with not wanting to embrace that or accept that because we live in a world where it's around us everywhere. But here Jesus shows up and this guy realizes he needs help. But the sin that oftentimes we find ourselves entangled with leaves us, this is why sin, again, like I said, is linked to leprosy, is it leaves us unclean. We feel defiled. We, we bring guilt upon ourselves, upon our hearts. And rather than being, being free to love God, free to love other people, free to serve other people with joy and happiness and, and the sense of just freedom, that we don't feel that because we have shackles on our heart, because we feel tethered, because we feel bound. It's guilt. It's defilement. It's one of the reasons why in the New Testament, the Bible is going to say that those who trust Jesus, those who love Jesus, those who have had relationship with Jesus are actually pure. Jesus cleanses them. Jesus washes them. Jesus removes their unclean, their, their impurity, and he cleans them. It's one of the reasons why in the book of Revelation, when uh, the church is depicted, it's depicted as a virgin wearing white. Virgins in that culture were, were priceless. And virginity is something that you only have once and you lose it and it's gone. You can't somehow return back to it. But this is what the gospel does. This is what Jesus says he will do. He will return purity to you. He will cleanse you again. He will remove the stain, the spot. <laughs> like Lady Macbeth, she talks about these damn spots that are all over her hands. She can't get rid of them. It's what happens to us. We have these spots on our hands. We can't get rid of them. 
But the gospel, Jesus comes to us and says, you can't do it. Because everything you put your hands to just stains you, defiles you more. But I can make you clean. And this guy comes to Jesus and he's like, I need to be clean. I want to be touched. I want love. I'm unclean. I can't do it. But he comes to Jesus and listen to how he prays. He comes and he says, if you will, you can make me clean. He doesn't come with a sense of entitlement. I mean, think about it. I, I think this guy, if anybody, out of all of us, can say this guy could somehow feel a little bit entitled. I mean, he's, he's risked everything. Like, he traveled maybe miles, maybe tens of miles, just to get to where Jesus is at. He braved crowds that were threatening his life to kill him, to maybe throw stones at him, cursing him. He's lived many, many years, perhaps, without any, any type of relationship, and he risks everything to get to Jesus. He could have sat down there. He could have been before Jesus, and Jesus, I risked everything. I traveled so far. Please, I deserve something. Just, just heal me some way. Cleanse me somehow. Like, I've done all of this for you. And here's the problem, that this, in a lot of ways, is the way most of us actually approach God. So we approach God with our list of, here's what I've done, God. I come from a good Christian family. People love Jesus. God, that's got to count for something. Or God, I've gone to church my whole life. That's got to count for something. And we approach God with this sense of entitlement that, God, you owe me something. But do you know what? If you approach God like that, if you treat God like that, what you're actually saying is that, God, you're my means to my true end. And my true end is I want to be clean. I don't want to feel guilt. That's my true end. So in other words, Jesus just becomes a means to your true end rather than the means in and of itself. And here's the problem, is that if you come to Jesus, if you somehow think that you can use Jesus to get an end other than him as being the ultimate end, then Jesus won't work for you. Some of you, I talk with people sometimes, and they're like, I tried Jesus, he didn't work for me, it didn't work out, I quit, I stopped. And oftentimes, I'll ask people, like, just, I love engaging conversation with people like that. I'm like, tell me a little bit about your experience with Christianity. Oftentimes, man, it's just, it's amazing to me. People oftentimes come to Jesus, come to God, and they're like, God, I'll follow you uh, if you can get rid of this guilt. God, I'll follow you if you can help me get this job. God, I'll follow you if you can get me a spouse. God, I'll follow you if you can just help me out in these areas. And so we start foundationally our relationship with God as actually using him. He's just a means to our end. In other words, whatever that ultimate end is in your life, that is your God. Not God. And Jesus can't be a means to an end. He has to be the end. And one of the ways you know that is you pray like this guy. He comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, if you will. See, here's the problem. Most of us think that we know what's best for our lives. That's all of our problem. All of us. Like, if we started doing surveys in here and being like, what's best for your life? All of us think we know what's best for our lives. Let me tell you this, because it would be a little bit of a hint or a secret, free of charge. If you let anxiety and fears overtake you and you are paralyzed by it, the reason why, because you actually have an idea in your mind as to what your life should look like, and God is not fulfilling your agenda, and you're upset about that. That's where our anxieties come from. I'm upset, God, because you're not doing it the way I expected you to do it. And I'm mad. I'm stressed out, I'm freaked out, I'm full of anxieties. Jesus' cure to that is he says, here's what you got to do. 
you got to let go of your concepts, your ideas, your expectations, and come to God as your dad. He loves you. You can't possibly know what's best for your life. We think we do. I think I do. I mean, I'm, honestly, like even preparing for this, this past week, my wife and I, we dealt with this together. We had a circumstance I'm not even going to, but we were stressed. We were dealing with the same type of thing. We're like, God, why? Why are you not coming through? I thought that this was going to work out this way, and I went and work out this way, and God, I'm at, we're at breaking points here. How come something's not showing up? How come something's not happening? And yet, my good father, my good dad, comes through. It's funny. Um, I can remember as a young Christian, thinking all sorts of thoughts in my life, thinking I know what's best. I know the best person that I should be in a relationship with. I know the best job, career, path I should be taking. I know all these things. And one by one, all of the things that I thought that were the best choices for my life, God start, started to uh, pull them apart, destroy them and completely thrash them, shatter them. And in the moment, it felt really hard and difficult as if God was literally destroying my life. Years later, I mean, I'm 41 years old now, so I can look back with a little bit of hindsight and say every single thing that God has ever dismembered in my life and broken apart and shattered or kept from me is actually a really good thing. Sometimes people say, God's not answering my prayers. Let me tell you something. God always answers your prayers. And here's how he answers. One of three ways. Either says yes, no, or he says later. So he always answers prayer. He says yes, no, or later. And you're like, he doesn't answer prayer. He did. It might not have been the answer you wanted, or it might have been a later answer, and you're like, I want it now. But again, this is the whole deal. This is the whole process of learning to trust my dad. Learning to trust our father. Do we know that he has our best interests in mind? Do we know that he loves us? Do we know that he cares for us? I do this with my children. They ask me questions all the time. They're, in a sense, like praying. It's communication. It's interaction with me as dad. Like maybe before bedtime. Dad, can I have some water? That's a yes. That's a prayer. Yes, I'm happy to answer that. In fact, I would be glad to even go get it myself. Uh, dad, it's just before bedtime. Can I have a cup of coffee? That's actually a no. No, you can't have a cup of coffee. Not right now. Uh, Dad, can we, you know, go to the beach? Yes, but later, all right? Right now it's time for bed. The sun's already set. Maybe tomorrow morning or tomorrow night we can go watch the sunset. We can do that together. We'll find a bench. We'll watch it together, enjoy it together. But that's a later, all right? That's the way God always answers prayers, all the time. And there is a segment of people that kind of have this idea. They're like, I know it's best for my life. I know the best course that's charted for my life. And we call those people adolescents, all right? Or if you're older, we call that extended adolescence. Most people that at some point wake up and realize, I don't know what's best for my life. I really don't. In those moments that I thought I did, I later came to realize that if God had given me what I wanted, it would have been horrible. I actually find deeper, greater joy in looking back and seeing that God actually redirected me away from things that could have been potentially deadly or bad or harmful or not the right path for me. You can't possibly know your life, what's best for your life. But God does. So this guy comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, if you will, you have the power, you have the ability to cleanse me. And here's what Next, final scandalous thing is that Mark records for us. He's in a story, and I'm almost done here. 
Here's what it says in verse 41. It says, moved with pity, Jesus stretched out his hand and he touched him. And he said to him, I will be clean. So first of all, we see Jesus move with pity. He's just compassionate. He loves every time that this word is actually used in the New Testament. Um, it's always used to define an action that Jesus does. It's kind of a crazy, long Greek word. I'm going to try to pronounce it. Splaxnizomai. Long word. Big word. But it's splaxnizomai that actually saved you. <laughs> crazy word, but it's what saved you. Jesus was moved with pity, and he moved. He did something. He acted upon this emotion, this raw feeling, this sense of mercy that he had in his heart and he responded to this guy and here's what he does and it says and he reached out stretched out his hand and he touched him so if in the storyline here's this guy on his hands and knees before jesus jesus standing there jesus i envision just reaching down touching him. did jesus need to touch him to heal him no jesus has already proven to us all he needs to do is speak and he heals that's all he needs to do he doesn't need to touch this guy why is he touching him he's proving a point He's very clearly communicating, speaking clearly just by his actions that what this guy needs is touch. Everybody has ran from him. Everybody has pulled away from him. Everybody has shunned him. Everybody has rejected him, neglected him. But Jesus doesn't. Jesus reaches down and touches him. He gives him what he needs most. He knows what he needs most. He needs a touch. Jesus touches him. You know that Jesus knows what you need most? He knows it. He touches this guy, transforms him, changes him, heals him. And this healing, I don't know exactly what happened. I don't know if this guy, if he had arms or feet or hands that had been lost or fingers that had been lost, if those grew back spontaneously, I have no idea. But all I know is that whatever happened, it was very clear to every single person around there. It was instantaneous. It was miraculous. And everybody was moved by this. Because at this particular point, then Jesus goes on and does something. But before I want to read that last final verse, is I want to kind of ask the question I think Mark is trying to get us to think about. And I think the question that Mark wants us to ask is, is how is it possible that Jesus can do this? Because here's what religion has always said throughout all history. Religion has always said this. Follow these sets of rules. Follow these particular practices. Do these particular religious things. And then you will become clean. You will become part of the in crowd. You'll become part of the, of the, the holy ones, the sanctified ones, the special ones. In order for you to keep your sanctified, special, holy status, what you need to do is you need to remove yourself and isolate yourself from people that are unholy, people that are unclean, people that are not righteous. So steer away from them, pull away from them, and you will continue to remain clean. Interact with unclean people, here's what happens. You become unclean. So steer away from anybody that's unclean, lest you become unclean too. But the first time in history ever, what we see here is... The clean touches an unclean, but doesn't become unclean, but the exact opposite happens. The unclean, for the first time, becomes clean. It's never happened before. The whole thing's been completely destroyed and smashed against the rocks. The way that everybody had ever thought has been completely thrown down the tubes, that somehow what Jesus does, he shows up as a king and he does something that's never been done before. And what ends up happening is Mark wants people to kind of ask this question spontaneously. How did that happen? 
How is it possible that Jesus did not become unclean? How is it possible that Jesus could heal this guy? I think Mark gives us a little clue as to where he's heading with this whole story. Here's what he finishes with this section here. And he says in about verse 43, he says, And then Jesus sternly charged him, and he sent him away at once. He said, Go, see that nothing is said to anyone. Go, but show yourself to the priests and offer yourself cleansing that Moses had commanded for proof of them. In verse 45, he says, but he went out and he began to talk freely about it and he spread the news. So it's kind of an interesting deal what's going on here. Jesus sternly warns this guy, don't tell anybody what happened. And this guy does what? Goes out and tells everybody. Jesus later on is going to die, rise again from the dead, ascend into heaven. He's going to tell everyone, go tell everyone, I rose died, rose again from the dead, and I'm coming back again. And we tell nobody. It's like, it's kind of an irony of ironies. But the fact of the matter is that this guy gets healed. Jesus says, don't tell anybody. He goes out and tells everybody. And here's where I think Mark wants the emphasis to be in verse 45. He says, but he went out and began to talk freely. And he goes on and says, so that Jesus could not walk openly in, or, in, or enter a town, but he was forced into the desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. Here's what I think Mark wants us to think about. Is that in order for Jesus to take this guy who was forced to live in the lonely places to bring him into a place of community because he enters into the city, enters into a place of community. In order for Jesus to do this, the way that Jesus was going to remove his uncleanness was that he was going to swap places with him. So in other words, Jesus himself will be forced out into the lonely places so that the one who is forced out in the lonely places can come into community. This is the gospel. This is what Jesus does for you. The story of what God has done for you is that God sends his son into this world to us that Jesus is treated as if he is unclean so that you and I who are actually unclean can be treated as if we are pure. Jesus, the pure one, is treated as if he is the worst sinner so that you and I who are actually sinners can be viewed by God as beloved children. You and I are recipients of this. If we trust, if we see what God has provided for us through Jesus the Son, this is the message that God comes proclaiming, speaking through Jesus. This is what Jesus comes to do. Martin Luther would call it the great exchange. He takes our unrighteousness upon himself and in turn gives us his righteousness. He gets treated as if he is the worst sinner in all the universe. And you and I, who are the worst sinners in all the universe, get treated as if we are beloved children. And Jesus does this by reaching out a hand and touching us. This is why we love Jesus. He changes lives. He changes people's hearts. He makes us different. He gives us a new heart, new desires, new affections. That maybe once we didn't love God, maybe once we just thought Christianity was religion, it was about doing stuff for God. But what he does is he changes us. He opens our eyes. He allows us to see that actually God does care for us. That God has provided every means possible in order to rescue us from hell and destruction. Because that's what we deserve. Jesus takes what we deserve upon himself and gives to us what we don't deserve. Gives to us what he alone deserves, which is sonship, which is family, which is a home to go to, which is a touch 
from God the Father, our Creator, who we were once at enmity with. This is what the gospel promises us. You ask, how did that happen? Why do I deserve that? And the answer is, you don't deserve it. You don't deserve it. Jesus does us free, but at great expense to himself, because this is where Mark's going with this. For Jesus, the path of the king is to the cross. The cross is horrible. This leper man who is treated as despised and rejected, will at some point, perhaps maybe in the ministry of Jesus, maybe at some point we'll actually see the one who healed him, Jesus, actually be treated as despised and rejected. That the cost to take this man who was once despised and rejected and be brought into relationship, that Jesus himself will be despised and rejected. This is where Mark's going with this. This is why we love Jesus. And Jesus rescues us and saves us so that once we're rescued and saved, we actually now begin to be like him. Why Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit and he sends us into the world and says, now be for the world what I was for Israel. Be for the world was what I was for people around the Sea of Galilee. Do for them. Love them. Use your hands in ways to demonstrate touch and kindness and affection. Do for people that can't do for themselves. The people that get the gospel get that. People that just simply get fundamentalism, they focus on just simply their teaching, their exposition, getting things solidly right, and they look at contempt with everybody else. People that just want to socially help people, they don't preach Jesus. They don't preach the gospel. They don't tell people about hell. They don't tell people about the destruction of sin. They just want to see everything get better. People that get the gospel are like Jesus with words and works combined. That's what God saves us for. We're going to respond. We're going to worship. I'm going to have these guys coming up. We're going to sing. We'll partake of communion. But what I want to do right now is before we jump in, is I just want to ask any of you, let's turn off the lights right now. I just kind of want to focus my thoughts on one particular thing. And I don't want to miss this because in reality, Jesus comes and he comes to this guy who's a leper and he heals him. He reaches out and he heals him. touches him. For some of you here tonight, some of you in your mind, you hear that story and you're like, gosh, if Jesus was here, I, I wish he would touch me. Maybe some of you have got areas of sin in your life, things that you're ashamed of, things that you don't want to tell anybody, things that you feel so ashamed about. I talked to a guy for a long time this past week, and he just, which he's, just, he, he's like, I don't even want to tell you what I've been doing. I feel so ashamed. And maybe that's where some of you are. You feel so ashamed. But you know the reality is? Is that it's not a mystery to God. He knows. It's not a mystery to him. You might not have ever told anyone, but God sees everything. There's nothing that God does not see. And maybe in your heart you think, gosh, if Jesus could touch me and just heal this heart that's broken, I'll take that offer. Maybe some of you here feel just fearful. You fear, uh, feel fear-driven. You feel basically crushed by all sorts of things, things that are weighing you down, things that are oppressing you and destroying you and ruining your life. And you wonder, man, if Jesus was here, I'd love to have him touch me. I'd love to have him pray for me. I'd love to have him heal me. The reality is, is Jesus is here. He is here. And the touch that Jesus uses is the touch that comes through the church, believe it or not. This is a mystery of mysteries because if you know anything about the church, if you're a Christian, you know the church is pretty much messed up. It's pretty much messed up. 
Again, I think it was Martin, you know, maybe either Augustine or Martin Luther, one of those two guys, describes a church. The church is a whore. She's my mother. She's a messed up, horrible. Again, Jesus says, go preach the gospel, and we are silent. We're not great witnesses. But the beauty, the beautiful reality of it is that God says that he has actually hidden his treasure of glory in vessels of clay. It's a mystery beyond mysteries. I don't get it. I'm certain that there's more efficient ways to get God's work done. But what God says is that I want to do my work through people that are broken, that have met the touch of Jesus. It's the church. Jesus is here, touching people. So if you're here right now, and you desire, you wish, man, just to have God's touch upon your life, for whatever reason, sin, weight of emotions that are destroying you, whatever it is. Maybe you're not a Christian and you would love to be. Whatever the circumstances are. I mean, there might be a plethora of other things that are on that list that I just didn't go down. But the reality is that that's you. You just want Jesus to touch you. That's you. I want you to stand right where you're at. This is always kind of hard. Kind of first person up is kind of always awkward and difficult. But we're at the church. We're Jesus' body. We're imperfect. We don't have it all together got areas in our lives, weights that we carry around with us, burdens that we carry around with us, things that are just crushing us. The reality is that that's what the church is here to pick up. It's here to carry those burdens. If anything, it's here to at least lay hands in you and say, you know what? My touch upon your shoulder is a way to remind you that Jesus cares. He's moved with compassion. He loves you. He cares for you. He's here to help. God has done something through his son that's so profoundly powerful and life-changing. Anybody else stand up? Just stand up right where you're at. Just going to have people around you lay hands on you and touch you, pray for you. If in your heart, you're just like, I just want Jesus to touch me. And there's nothing magical about standing, but there's something beautiful about having the body around you just touch you, pray for you, lay hands on you. Give me another couple seconds. Just stand up right where you're at. If uh, you're sitting next to someone that's standing, can you just lay hands on these people? Make sure that anybody who's standing, um, that everyone standing has someone touching them on their shoulder, touching them on their forehead, on their head. Some it's touching them. And uh, the, the touch that you're feeling right now is, is I, I, don't, I don't think it's too far off to say it's, it's God hand touching you through broken, imperfect, redeemed sinners that are just like you, that have maybe perhaps even been in the same places where you were. I want to pray, and then we'll sing and uh, partake of communion. But let's pray. Jesus, I pray right now for these people that are standing. You know exactly what's going on in their heart. You know the things that they're struggling with, the things that they need your touch. You know them. You know those things intimately. They don't even need to necessarily be described or communicated or spoken. But God, you know them. The fact that these people are standing is basically a way in which they're just saying they need you to touch them. And I'm asking you, Father, would you just, through the hands and the feet and the touch of the people that are in this room that are representatives of Jesus that have been redeemed and touched by Jesus himself, God, I pray that you would just extend that touch, extend that grace, extend that love to these people. 
Help them to know, God, that you're touching, that you are moved by compassion, in compassion to love on them, to reach out to them, to heal them, to clean them, to transform them, to give them a new heart, to give them new affections, new desires, new passions. So God, we ask you right now that you would just fall afresh upon them, restore, renew, cleanse, wash, forgive, remove the burden. God, for some of these people, I'm sure maybe it's just it's just a, a weight of guilt. For some of them, it's just constant anxiety. They're afraid. They're afraid of the future. They're afraid of the fact that their life is not going exactly to the plan that they had anticipated or that they had expected or that they thought. God, I pray that you would help them to lay those things down at your feet, just like the leper. Just say, if you will, I don't know what's best for my life, but I know that you know what's best. God, I pray that that would be their experience right now. As we worship you right now, God, I pray that you just receive our praise. That would be genuine here tonight. wouldn't just be merely mouthing some words or singing some songs, but God, it would be us meeting, touching, loving, praying, seeking our dad, spending time with our dad, our heavenly father who cares for us, who's demonstrated his care, his affection, his kindness to us, and that Jesus died on the cross for us. So God, as we partake of communion even, that we would realize that the bread that we eat, that it's broken, Jesus was broken for us so that those of us who are broken can be actually made whole. God, as we give even our tithes and our offerings to you, as we give them to you, God, I pray that you receive them as tokens of affection and love to you. So we sing to you now. We worship you now. We confess sin to you now. We remember Jesus dying on the cross for us now. God, meet us here, we pray.